Dear Kirk, thank you very much for accepting this invitation to sit down and uh, finally talk briefly about some questions personally I had about BSD and also FreeBSD. It's uh, really an honor for me for finally uh, to meet you and uh, I'm really grateful. I think every single person who listens to this uh, even broadcast or, or the podcast form uh, came across your name and uh, at least uh, uh, BSD or FreeBSD at some point in their personal or professional life and uh, I would just encourage the ones who, who did not that uh, would uh, have a look at your website. Uh, it will be in the show notes. Or even easier, as you are uh, such a rock star yourself, you have your own Wikipedia entry. So uh, I don't want to waste any more time on, on introductions which are not needed. And let's talk about your contribution to computer science. Uh, what do you feel when you look back on the history of BSD? As far as you, as far as you can, uh, when you look at it and you see what it has become today, in in including uh, uh, as it uh, got uh, mixed into into become eventually FreeBSD. Well, certainly, if you had asked me back in 1978 when it was, you know, Bill Joy, a fellow graduate student who was writing some programs and sending them out to people, uh, you know, what it was going to eventually become, I probably would have questioned your sanity. Uh, it, you know, it didn't really begin to sink home to me until uh, really the early 1980s when we started releasing the, the BSD, Berkeley Software Distributions from Berkeley, uh, which were, you know, complete operating systems that ran at that point on the VAX. And, it, and, with the, as we transitioned uh, up to releasing 4.2, which was the first one that had sockets and internet connectivity and so on, um, I began to think, you know, this this could really turn into something. Uh, now, at the time, there were at least a dozen different networking uh, protocols and ideas that were running around, and it was a complete mishmash of stuff. Uh, if you look at the origins of SendMail, which was being done at that time, you know, a huge amount of its complexity was to deal with gatewaying between, you know, CSNAD and the ARPANET and uh, the UUCP dial-up NAD and so on and so forth. And so it was not at all clear that TCP/IP was going to become the winning thing. And that really didn't become clear until almost the 1990s. And I think it's the first time I saw a URL on a billboard, which was in about 1991, that I said, you know, I think this internet thing is going to get out of the research labs and out into the world. Uh, and of course, it did. And, you know, it's a huge thing today. Uh, now, you know, BSD was the implementation in BSD was the implementation that almost everybody used, at least up until the early 1990s. And in fact, it's still, big pieces of it are still widely used uh, today. Uh, of course, from the university, uh, we wrapped up that research project and spun it out as open source software. And then the question is, you know, you, you sow something out over the fence, but is anybody going to do anything with it? And so there was, you know, kind of a gap and the, the big lawsuit, et cetera, that, that sort of slowed things down. But, you know, once the dust settled on that, not only did it get picked up 
uh, but it got picked up by multiple threads. So there was NetBSD and OpenBSD and FreeBSD, and all of these sort of had their little niche and and sort of filled it. So you know, OpenBSD was really focusing on the security issues, and NetBSD was focusing on running lots of platforms, and that FreeBSD was focusing on making a system that would work really well on the the PC computer architecture of the time. And so at that point, I said, you know, this this thing really has legs. And it was pretty clear to me that it, it had a long run ahead of it. And when actually uh, I, I get the feeling from what you are saying that uh, when actually it came to that very last uh, BSD release, uh, eventually you got involved with FreeBSD because you 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 felt that it was not right that that it ended at that point at at that moment and you felt it like the proper con- continuation of of that hard work uh, what has been done by you and your 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 fellow colleagues to to bring to bring this this flag forward so to say right i i actually deliberately did not get involved in any of the spin out projects right at the start uh, for two reasons one was that i had been essentially running the project for the past decade, and uh, I just felt that it was, you know, I didn't want to do what Linus Torvalds has done, which is just be in charge forever. Uh, I wanted to bring in new blood. It was more interesting to me that it continue and that I not be the necessary linchpin to make that happen. So I kind of stood back and, uh, you know, I'm on all, all of the major mailing lists. Uh, and then eventually, you know, once the projects had established themselves, I then sort of had to pick a, a project to align myself with. Uh, that is one where I was going to be directly, you know, doing stuff in it. And I ultimately chose FreeBSD because their goals, which were to you know, run on commodity hardware, a particular commodity hardware uh, was most appealing to me. It seems sort of the most down-to-earth and practical. So that's why I chose that particular organization. But I wanted to make sure that they had already established their own leadership because I didn't. I was afraid if I came in too early that I would just be made the leader, and I didn't want that to happen. Um, it was really my goal that I, I could sit back and just sort of work over in my corner and do stuff but not be the person who was in charge. Linux, indeed, uh, as you mentioned yourself, has a completely different uh, hierarchical setup, to use that word, when you compare it to to, to FreeBSD. And uh, and uh, I honestly think that the one uh, you set it up uh, together with the others at FreeBSD, probably that's the that's the sustainable and uh, and the one which can which can go forward in in as long as it uh, people are alive and able to carry it as you made your choice on uh, freebsd because you had the openbsd and netbsd you probably didn't want to work on microwave ovens and trying to make netbsd run on them uh, how you are with the text editors are you uh, using any uh, strange uh, text editors uh, big emacs fan or, or or vi perhaps well, I VI was being you know, designed and built uh, in Bill Joy's office, so it became sort of natural to uh, use it. Uh, Emacs at that point 
kind of existed, but you needed a lot more CPU time in order to run it than uh, VI. Uh, and we were had a distinct shortage of CPU cycles back in those days. It was, you know, a shared PDP 1170 across the entire department. So, or later VAX, but that wasn't all that much faster, really. Uh, so, so VI was was well tuned to that, and I I learned VI. Uh, in later years, I, I made an attempt to do Emacs, but you know the the, the sort of the, the way I describe the difference is uh, with VI, it's nouns and verbs, and so you you have a, a thing that you want to act on and a thing you want to do to it. So you just learn you know word and line and letter and so on, and learn change and delete and add, uh, and then you can combine those things together, uh, and you know it's it's a couple keystrokes, whereas uh, Emacs is designed to minimize key presses, but you just have to memorize a lot of magic stuff. It's, you know, medic control, Coke bottle, something or other to make, you know, some particular thing happen. And first of all, uh, I never learned to touch type, so having to type multiple things at the same time, if it's much more than a control or a shift, it's, you know, beyond my capability, because the left hand does that and the right hand types the key. Uh, so, uh, you know, so VI was was well-suited both to the way I think and to the way I type, and so that's where I've just been ever since. It's a, it's a, it's a good choice. I, myself, I, I, I did try myself in Emacs, uh, it hurt my wrist. That's that's all I'm gonna say about it. <laughs> uh, yourself, let let me ask you about that that famous summer project uh, you had uh, based on your uh, history video. You you picked up a summer project, which eventually uh, became of the fast file system for BSD. Started as over a summer, but eventually it took you pretty much longer to. to <laughs> yes, it. we got the first ninety percent done in the summer, and the remaining ninety percent over the next. 10 years. As, as you are a file system person, it's good to ask you, I guess, what do you think of ZFS as it's uh, still, even today, it's a big thing. It's, uh, it's, it's famous. Many people swear by it. Uh, it was originally created by Sun Microsystems, which uh, you had some uh, runs into, to use that word. So I've often asked, you know, you know, now that the FreeBSD is, is a full-fledged uh, system with ZFS, is you know, what role is there for UFS, if any, uh, in this day and age? And the answer to that is that the UFS or any overwriting file system uh, technology is uh, it's compact, uh, it's highly efficient, but it, it doesn't scale to really huge file systems. Uh, and the, you know, the, the single biggest issue with it is that it you know, when certain things happen, you just have to run FSCK to clean it up. And the time it takes to run FSCK is proportional to how big it is. And so when you get past somewhere around 10 terabytes, the time it takes to FSCK it is just hours if it's a, a full file system with a lot of files in it. And that's just not practical. Um, ZFS is much bigger system. It's much heavier use of resources, but it scales to enormous file systems. And when you get to that size of file system, you need thing, the redundancy that ZFS has, the, the checksums uh, on the data blocks, the, all of the metadata is all duplicated, at least two copies, possibly three. Uh, and 
underneath that, you have things like RAID, RAID-Z, etc. Uh, and the real benefit there is that uh, there's, there's never a situation that you get in where you have to run FSCK on a ZFS file system. You'll run Scrub, which on a huge ZFS file system can take weeks, literally, but the Scrub just kind of goes along and it, you know, it eventually makes its way across the entire file system. And it can be running while the file system is delivering, you know, and so you can kind of tail, you know, cut back on the amount of the speed at which the scrub is running. If the system is busy during the day and, you know, crank it up if you got some pre cycles at night, but you know, over the course of, of time, it can go through and literally check that absolutely everything in that file system is as it should be uh, and correcting along the way because of all the redundancy that's there. Uh, so, I mean, you know, worst case you might lose a, a file or something, but the file system itself, the integrity will be there just as if you had run a full-fledged FSCK. Uh, and then, of course, it's got other features which come out of a non-overwriting file system, like being able to take snapshots, being able to do clones. Um, the UFS has the ability to do snapshots, but they're painful. They are expensive to maintain, so you really can't have more than a few of them uh, at any point in time. Uh, you, you can't clone a, a UFS snapshot the way you can clone a ZFS snapshot. Uh, in fact, if ZFS had been around uh, earlier, I probably wouldn't have bothered to even try and putting snapshots into uh, the UFS because with an overwriting file system, every time a write happens to the file system, you got to check and see, oh, is that something that's in a snapshot? Do I need to make a copy of it? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so, you know, if you want that kind of functionality or you need that kind of functionality, you know, ZFS is a really obvious place to put it. Uh, ZFS also works really well on encryption and compression and just a myriad of different features. So at the end of the day, if you've got really big file systems or you want the features like snapshotting and cloning, which makes, for example, rolling forward uh, you know, new versions of the system much less painful, uh, then ZFS makes a great deal of sense. It doesn't mean there isn't a place still for UFS. If you've got a small embedded application, uh, then you, first of all, you probably don't have the resources to run ZFS. And secondly, you don't need all of that. Uh, so you look at, for example, Netflix content distribution. Uh, you know, there's probably a thousand of them out there at least. And you know, they're all running UFS because their job is to get movies off of disk and out onto the wire. And, you know, if they lose a disk, they don't care. They'll just slam in a new disk, download, you know, another copy of the movie that onto it, boom, and away they go. So uh, for those types of applications, ZFS doesn't make any sense. Uh, and the inefficiencies and overhead don't make sense because they just want something that's going to serve up files. So your embedded applications, your dedicated download applications are going to continue to use UFS. And the people that have the, the higher resources and want the higher functionality and honestly reliability of ZFS, then they're going to use ZFS. So there's a place for both. And, uh, you know, I... I, I embrace the fact that UFS is no longer on the hook for dealing with these ginormous file systems because that was starting to really cause headaches. Um, 
my my real point in in ZFS is to look at Linux, uh, and they have recognized that they have a need for a non-overwriting file system, which they have as ButterFS, but they haven't had the resource. Well, they've had the resources, but they haven't had the energy to actually make ButterFS into something that's reliable and functional. Uh, and so they're pretty much stuck with just EXT, which is an overwriting file system. And I'm going to be very curious to see how long they're going to continue to resist allowing ZFS into Linux, because they're going to have to deal with it at some point. Either they're going to have to get ButterFS to work or they're going to have to import ZFS. And of course, there's a lot of outside people that are that have essentially got ZFS running on Linux now. And uh, uh, even Debian is, is, has some prototypes where they're shipping it. Uh, but the, the Linux community is, is very anti-ZFS because of its community license that uh, they don't like. So it's going to be an interesting battle. But I think one of the huge winning cards for uh, FreeBSD is the fact that it has ZFS as a first classes and full support and has had it for a decade. Uh, so it, like, it really works. Personally, what uh, I really like about uh, the BSD uh, systems out there, we can say FreeBSD, is the fact that uh, many people don't recognize that Linux uh, in itself, it's not nothing as just the kernel and you need to uh, get a distribution to get all the things around it to make it a, a functional operating system while BSD, in, in the case of FreeBSD as well, uh, it comes uh, everything in a box, so to say. Therefore, uh, I, I beg the question that, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Battle, if BSD uh, was not frozen up for uh, those three years, three long years, which allowed li Linux to, to get a head start uh, during the the AT&T uh, and BSDI lawsuit period, would BSD be what Linux is today? It's a very interesting question, and you know, obviously, I don't have the answer to it, but I'll still speculate. Um, I actually was at one of the EUUG, the European Unix Users Group meetings, which were uh, they met. Uh, every six months, and they rotated around countries in Europe, um, much like the EuroBSD does today. And in fact, uh, EuroBSD is derived from the, the European Unix users group uh, people. Uh, at any rate, uh, this, that particular one uh, was in Helsinki. And at one of the speakers at the conference was Linus Torvalds. And it was, in fact, the first time that he had done a talk about Linux in English at a conference. And uh, he, he actually did a remarkably good job of it. And, you know, I went up and chatted with him afterwards. And um, at that point, Linux wasn't really a full operating system yet. It really started out as sort of a, a terminal management system and it then expanded uh, fairly soon thereafter into having full operating system functionality. And I asked him, you know, we've got BSD. Um, we hadn't 
it hadn't actually quite released as an open source at that point, but it was very close to it. It had been announced that it was going to happen. It just hadn't happened yet. They said, you know, why don't you use that as a basis for a system? And he said, well, you know, there's a lot of concern whether AT&T is going to, you know, try and stop it. And, you know, if I put a bunch of, you know, effort and energy into that, you know, and then AT&T yanked the rug out from under me uh, or under it, uh, you know, that that would just – I couldn't deal with that. And at least with Linux, I know since it, I'm starting it from scratch that, you know, AT&T is not going to be able to come after – no company is going to be able to come after us. So uh, if there hadn't been that sort of shroud, it's just possible that Linus would have just – jumped on and been part of the whole BSD uh, bandwagon. Um, now, of course, you know, that was then, this is now. By the time the lawsuit was over, Linux was indeed a, a big and growing thing. And in fact, uh, I have to say that um, the, the Linux bandwagon is one of the things that really helped establish open source software in general as a viable thing. You know, I mean, up to that point, open source was like, you know, what crazy people did in their basement, you know, but uh, it was not in any sense something that a, a big corporation would even consider uh, letting onto their system. And so uh, Linux itself established the notion that open source software was legitimate. Uh, and I mean, it wasn't just Linux, it was also the uh, Free Software Foundation pushing out uh, GCC. Uh, up, to the, up until GCC came out, uh, compilers were things that you bought from companies. And GCC just commodified the compiler business. I mean, why would you pay for something uh, with an you know, ongoing monthly fees when you could have GCC, which did just as good a job. And so you know, compilers as a business just disappeared. Uh, and that was sort of the first big step. And then Linux coming along was the next big step. You didn't have to buy Unix from AT&T. You could just get Linux and use that. Uh, it was really not until sort of the end of the 90s that well, companies like Red Hat came into existence uh, to provide sort of the other half of what you need. You need the open source software, but you, companies also want somebody to blame if something goes wrong. They want to be able to say, I am paying you, and if this breaks, you are going to fix it because I'm paying you. And Red Hat provided that. Uh, and so it was a combination of open source software and companies coming to existence that would support it, uh, that really sort of established that as an idea. Um, SendMail Inc. also came along in the late uh, 90s and similarly established that a commercial company could base their product around open source software. You know, they did support and add-ons to it, like some of their spam detection modules were like an extra cost thing. But the, the base MTA was just the open source and, you know, they supported the open source and fed stuff back to it. And... Uh, I remember some of the early debates that were going on. It's like, well, how can you make any money for something you can get for free? And it was, you know, today, you, you, you know, no company is going to give you any kind of an argument like that. They get it. Uh, and in fact, you know, 
companies are almost forced to do open source in a lot of things because if they don't, they're just someone's going to do a runaround on them. So, uh, you know, things that we take for granted today uh, weren't always that way. And, you know, you look at things like Linux and GCC and uh, SendMail and other things that came out of, of BSD. And those are the things that really established open source uh, for what it is today. So, uh, you know, yeah, I, I wish that things had gone slightly different between BSD and Linux, but, you know, we're both here. It's unlikely that either of us is going to go away uh, because there's uh, a lot of companies that have learned their lesson from Windows, which is if there is only one operating system and everybody is using it and somebody finds a hole, the whole world melts down. And so you really need completely independent implementations of your operating system. Uh, so, for example, uh, VeriSign, the people that, that run a bunch of the DNS backbones, they their backbones run equally on Linux, on uh, Windows, and on FreeBSD. Uh, and they, they have like three different groups. Each of them develops that. All of those, like an instance of every one of those servers is in every... Um, yep. server installation that they have so that if you know something takes down Linux, let's say, they've still got the other two uh, to keep going. And so, uh, you know, it, it, we're not going to get to the point where there's just one operating system. We had that for a period of time in the 90s, and, we, and, and many companies have learned the, the fallacy of that approach. Many, many companies, uh, like you mentioned, not only requires... Uh a kind of like a multi operating system uh, uh, layout to be to be involved in their in their hierarchy in their in their IT systems but uh, many even uh, request uh, multi hardware uh, vendors to be present they don't allow for example only let's say Cisco or Juniper products because as you said if they find one uh, fault or a backdoor in in a Cisco product and they decided to build all their infrastructure on that they they have to uh, keep uh, more than one uh, vendor, not not uh, sign up for one. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, your conversation with Linus Lin, Linus Torvalds uh, about BSD, he did mention in an article in 2004. He was kind of like predicting the death of uh, BSD. That's now uh, 16 years ago, and today we are here, and FreeBSD is happier than ever. I only want to mention also that uh, with, the, with the BSD net releases, uh, I, I honestly believe that, uh, that you were uh, in the forefront of, uh, of the open source uh, bandwagon, as you, as you use the word. So way before anyone else uh, uh, tried something similar. So that's, a, that's an achievement uh, there again. BSD is still here uh, 16 years later of, of Linux's uh, prediction. And uh, what do you think? How much of that prediction of his back in 2004 is, is true today for the future of BSD? Well, the part of the prediction that Linux was going to predominate has in fact come true. I mean, there's you know, a lot more Linux out there than there is uh, BSD. Uh, but you know, for the reasons that I've already explained, uh, FreeBSD still has a big chunk of of space, a big big part of the uh, the market. It tends to not be as evident as Linux. Uh, Linux, you know, in many cases is 
is like the thing that you see front and center, whereas the, the BSDs uh, tend to be being used in uh, DNS servers uh, or they're the basis of your Apple computer where you know what's being touted is not Darwin, which is FreeBSD down at the very bottom, but, you know, the Apple thing, uh, the Sony PlayStation 4 and, and 5 are, you know, all, I mean, that's FreeBSD through and through, even more so than it is on the Apple computer. And uh, again, you know, when you pick up a PlayStation 4, you don't log in, you know, you just start playing games and it's, you know, not at all obvious to you. In fact, there was a... One of the ways that someone said, well, PlayStation isn't running it. It turns out uh, they hadn't disabled the demon that would give you a login prompt. So you could, if you went and typed something in at your PlayStation, you could actually get a, you know, FreeBSD, blah, 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 login. Uh, they, they fixed that. You can't do that anymore. But uh, uh, the, the point is that uh, BSD is out there in many, many places. And for the reasons we talked about earlier, you know, that's just not going to go away. Um, and yeah. what's going to be really interesting to me is how Linux is going to carry on once uh, Linus is out of the picture. Uh, either he decides to retire or he passes away or whatever. Uh, and at this point, I, I'm pretty sure that what will happen is that the Linux Foundation will just, uh, you know, essentially take over. Uh, you know, it, it will essentially become a, a commercial consortium of people that will handle Linux. And uh, I mean, it'll remain open source because that's the way you do things these days. But uh, it, it, it's going to be interesting to, to see how that, that plays out uh, because that will then, of course, make it, uh, well, let's, I'll just say less focused. Uh, the with Linus sitting at the top and and sort of acting as the arbiter, uh, I mean, you may argue with how he does it, but he does do that very strongly, and so there there is a a coherent vision in Linux. Uh, in FreeBSD, we have managed to keep that through the the use of the core team, um, which is not the same people for long. Well, people go on the core team and may be there for you know, a decade, uh, but most of them sort of come and go every four to six years. Uh, but there's still, it carries over. So there's still a focus of, you know, how things should be done and keeping, you know, all the wood behind one arrow as Scott McNeely of Sun used to like to say. Uh, and so, uh, and, and that model is going to keep that, you know, tight focus. Uh, whereas I'm concerned that once, Linus and his lieutenants move on. Uh, that you know, once once companies get in charge of things, it it tends to get a little incoherent. I would like to point out the how, how unfair the the word is in the sense that uh, you mentioned companies and uh, that they uh, kind of getting in in charge of, of of Linux at some point. I would say that it's it's already happening as the. Unfair the word is the Linux Foundation is receiving a lot, a lot, a lot of money from all these big corporations, be it Microsoft or, or all the rest, while the, the, the FreeBSD Foundation is really getting peanuts compared to, to that money. Uh, I'm not meaning it in a, in a, in a bad way. Uh, I think the, the takeover is already happening with, uh, with Linux through the foundation, uh, putting all that money into them. 
uh, I would love to see uh, the FreeBSD Foundation getting uh, getting more than than what it does now, and I think that. Uh, Looking at all the all the improvements from from previous FreeBSD versions, uh, it's incredible that uh, you guys were able to do so much with so little, so to say. While you look at uh, Linux and all the money being poured into it, and uh, well, I don't know if I I should be that. I'm I'm not sure that my 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 impression of 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 how great those guys are doing is is equally measured compared to the amount of money they 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 put on on that thing. Well, you know, one of the things that the Linux Foundation is able to do that FreeBSD just can't is that they support Linux on just about any piece of hardware, you know, any peripheral, any Wi-Fi card, any laptop, any anything. Uh, somebody's going to have Linux running on it, and you know, make, you know, just as hardware manufacturers uh, in the '90s had to make sure that Windows worked on everything that they released. These days, they pretty much have to make sure that Linux works on everything that they release. And uh, so, you know, yes, there's a tremendous amount of money going in, but there's also a tremendous amount of stuff that needs to be supported. And, you know, that's just not the case with FreeBSD. FreeBSD sort of picks and chooses and it says, okay, this is the things we're going to support and we're going to support them well. But, for example, that, you know, I would love to, to, you know, just be able to go into a store and buy a laptop that had FreeBSD installed on it. You know, as it is now, I have to, you know, find out what, you know, which laptop should I buy and, you know, will it support it? And then I spend way too much time getting it all up and running and there's almost inevitably something, either the, you know, the, the snooze doesn't work or, you know, the Wi-Fi doesn't quite work or this or that. And, uh, you know, the reason is because, you know, if you buy the exact same model of laptop from the same manufacturer two months apart, something in there will have changed. They will have changed some part. And, you know, they will have made sure that Linux works with that new part. But, of course, they're not making sure that FreeBSD works with that part. And so even though you bought exactly the model that they, you know, you were told FreeBSD would run on, oh, but the Wi-Fi doesn't work yet. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get it there, you know, it just – that level of, of, of irritation that I would love to see, for example, the FreeBSD Foundation just say, all right, we are going to, you know, get a particular model of laptop that we're just going to track and, and we're going to make sure that FreeBSD works on that, like just boom, out of the box. Uh, and then hopefully find, you know, some company that's willing to, you know, sell them because obviously you don't want the FreeBSD Foundation to be in the middle of selling laptops and software installs and all that um but you know if if the foundation had more money that would be one of the first things that i would try and get them to do to, to make sure that uh, you can get a laptop with freebsd running on it out of the box 100 percent. yep and like the browser works and like you know when i get in a zoom session the camera works and the audio works and you know <laughs> on and on you know to be honest with you i I kind of like exactly these things you 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 mention as you would like to get rid of because I got uh, easily a 30 minute episode out of all my uh, ups and downs uh, with FreeBSD on a on a little Lenovo X220 laptop. So for me it was a uh, god given. For you it was uh, uh, you you mentioned it as it was uh, was the bad side of of BSD. 
uh, for me it was fun because it uh, I had something to talk about it that oh look the webcam didn't work and I had to suffer look around Google and then someone said no you also have to be part of the video user of the video group and I said oh okay so now it works but, uh, that's the little joys of uh, little joys of life and actually that that just rhymes into uh, I think pretty much uh, my last question even though I could go on I think all night I, I couldn't stop talking to the US it's a lot of fun uh, I, I knew and I expected uh, Bill Joy and Sun Microsystems uh, I mentioned in my in my uh, in my BSD history I, I made uh, thanks to you as you agreed to to use your notes and and, uh, and presentations I did mention uh, as my side note that uh, somehow I would would have uh, liked to see uh, you accepting that single digit employee number in Sun Microsystems and uh, and go work there. Uh, did you actually uh, ever miss the the chance you were given to work there? You know, it, it, it's like the, you know the parallel universe where you know, all right, I went off and did that, you know, and today I would be you know one of these people with some large number of millions of dollars to my name, um, and. You know that that you know, I, I have friends that are in that category, and um, I I certainly uh, have you know I am not hurting for money today, even though I'm not in their league at all. But I'm almost happier not having that much money because I look at what they have and the the set of headaches that they have that I just don't have to worry about. So, for example, uh, just a couple of examples. One of them. Uh, when his kids were going to school, um, he had to have bodyguards to drive them to and from school so they wouldn't be kidnapped. He had to have bulletproof glass put in all the windows of his house to prevent invasion robberies. He, you know, he is constantly being, you know, approached by people uh, that, you know, are trying to find one way or another weaseling money out of them. And, you know, it's just the headaches that he goes through that, you know, I don't need bulletproof glass in my house. I can walk down the street anytime I want. No one's going to try and kidnap me. Uh, so, you know, in some sense, you know, it, I'm sure it would have been interesting, but, you know, I, I do not regret where I ended up. Uh, you know, I, Essentially, once I left the university, once the, um, uh, you know, we had spun it out and the lawsuit had all settled down, that was all done, uh, I left the university. And uh, as an academic at the university, the way it works is uh, you're essentially, uh, you either can take your summers off to do a little mini sabbatical or you can sort of do a day a week of outside consulting. Uh, and I chose the latter. So I would, you know, do stuff with various companies. And I ended up working with about 30 different companies. And so when I left the, um, the university, I figured, well, you know, I don't know exactly which company I want to go to. So I'll just continue doing this little consulting thing for a while until I find exactly, you know, the next Sun Microsystems and I'll join them. Uh, but I never did. So, you know, to this day, I'm still a consultant. Uh, and back in those days, uh, they, the rules about stock was a lot less strict than they are today. And so 
when I when you go to a startup, a startup is short of cash and long on stock. Uh, and so what I would do is I'd say, all right, well, my consulting rate is this, but I'm willing to have you just pay half of that to me in cash and the other half in stock. So I ended up getting a small amount of stock in about 30 different companies. And uh, the upshot of that today is that uh, 26 of those 30 are wallpaper. Um, three of them panned out and you know eventually went public, um, including the 2,000 shares of Sun that I got for consulting to them. Uh, and there's one that you know, the jury's still out on. Uh, and you know each one of those sets of stock was was worth a not insignificant amount of money. So in fact, that's why I have you know the resources that I have today. But uh, you know it, that worked out really well for me. I got to be involved in a bunch of startups, which was really kind of exciting. I mean, I really love that first ramp up to about 100 employees uh, because everybody's just talking to everybody and, and everybody is super excited and super focused on what they're trying to do. And, uh, you know, with startups, you know, there's sort of, there's three legs. You got to have you know, the technical stuff that you need, obviously. You got to have the funding and you got to have the sales and marketing components. And if you don't have those three, then you don't succeed. And even if you do have all of those three, there's just a certain amount of luck of the die. I mean, you can do everything on all three things perfectly, but you just aren't in the right place at the right time. And you can screw up on at least one of them, uh, but be in the right place at the right time and and, and still do really well. So, um, you know, just sort of seeing and learning and being part of all that uh, has had led me to have what I felt like is an incredibly interesting and exciting life and it's also let me do a ton of traveling um, which is something that I greatly enjoy and being self-employed I'm in charge of my own time so it's like let's say I'm going to go to the the EuroBSD and of course that moves around to a different country every year and so I've gone to all these countries like Serbia that I'd never been to before Uh, and uh, you know it's like well you know I'll take an extra week, like before or after the conference, to just see this country. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I have to go to my boss and say, boss, I want to take an extra week off after I go to that conference. And so if I say, you know, you're not going to get paid, it's like, yeah, yeah, I get that. Okay, well, then I'll let you go. And uh, so, boom, you know. So, uh, you know, the net effect is that I've, I've managed to see huge amounts of the world uh, and, meet amazing people all over the world. And so, you know, if I had just been working for a company like Sun, you know, I, I wouldn't have gotten to do all of that traveling. Uh, you know, one of the, just another sort of random thing was uh, the Australian Unix users group uh, has an annual conference. Uh, and then they, in the other half of the year, uh, what they used to do would be run uh, state conferences. So, uh there's eight, seven states plus the capital territory. So eight, nominally eight, eight different conferences that get run. And so they lined them up a week apart. And then they had me come to Australia. And each week I would fly to the next uh, 
part where the next conference was going to be. And, you know, they were sort of threadbare organizations. So instead of putting me up in a hotel, I said, look, you know, I'm fine with just staying with people in their homes. Uh, And, you know, so those people would come and meet me at the airport and I'd have, you know, day or two of tutorials and the talk. And then I'd have two to three days to just see the, whatever that little part of Australia was. And, uh, you know, that, that just worked out phenomenally well. And so I spent two months in Australia just popping around place to place. And uh, I, I sort of fell in love with Australia. So I've now spent another, over the, since that time, essentially another four months in total in Australia. So I've spent half a year of my life in that country. Um, and uh, so, you know, being able to do stuff like that just wouldn't have been possible if I'd been a full-time employee at some company. That's true. You definitely were uh, looking back on, on, on all you did. You were uh, at a good place in a good time uh, with BSD. Then eventually you decided to 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 continue on, on free BSD, where you are uh, still there today. And uh, the consulting work you mentioned, you, you indeed uh, chose freedom. And uh, and it panned out uh, great for you. I'm I'm very grateful for that, and I'm very grateful for this conversation. Uh, finally, we we got around to 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 do it after a, a couple of months of of planning and convincing. <laughs> yep, yep. Twisted my arm. All right, I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> Thank you very much. I think we can uh, we can conclude with this, and uh, and I wish you all the best for for anything you you have in mind. Well, thank you, and uh, I look forward to hearing the you know, distilled down podcast. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs>